Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Richard Brown. Richard is a philosopher at the City University of New York. His work is focused on the philosophy of mind, consciousness studies, and the foundations of cognitive science. He also works on the philosophy of language, metaethics, philosophy of physics, logic, and the philosophy of logic, as well as the history of philosophy. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 50 or so others, so why not write us a review or a rating? Every share rating review helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate and rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on any social media platform. We're on Reddit, Discord, Telegram, Instagram, Facebook, and most other places. You'll be made welcome in any of our groups that are open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Good morning. I'm excellent. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks. It's great to have the chance to talk to you. I've been an admirer of your Consciousness Live series and read some of your work, although I'm you know, very much an amateur in the field. So it's great to have the chance to have a, a conversation. And as we've talked oh, about you. before, this series of conversations really tries to center on what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions. What's real? What should we believe? And what matters morally? And I have an obvious bias because I'm framing it in the context of this really super basic worldview called sentientism, which basically says, when it comes to thinking about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to what matters morally, we should set our scope of moral consideration, the clue is in the name, based on sentience, any entity that we think has a reasonable chance of being able to experience suffering, flourishing. But I'm talking to people in these conversations who disagree with that worldview or parts of it and who agree with it. So it would be fascinating to hear your personal story. But before we get on to that, for people who don't know your work already, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? How would I best introduce myself? Yeah, my name is Richard Brown. I am a carbon-based life form living in the local group, currently residing on planet Earth, hanging around here. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm interested in philosophy of mind and consciousness, and in particular, the relation of mind to the brain and philosophy of neuroscience, philosophy of cognitive science, get in there. And I have background beliefs that uh, philosophy is best when it's tightly coupled to the sciences. And so I have some background in in neuroscience and psychology as well. Of course, work, lab work, that sort of stuff. And my work is intersectional in that way. But generally speaking, I'm interested in in philosophy and questions about the nature of reality and ethics. And so all of the sorts of things that uh, we're here to talk about. That's what keeps me up at night. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. And I feel almost embarrassed asking a professional philosopher such basic common sense questions. (laughs) I barely qualify. I barely qualify. I don't feel that guilty. Yeah, so uh, that's fascinating. Thank you. So let's get into the first of those two deep questions, what's real? And for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in a sort of naturalistic, maybe atheistic context, or one that was more supernatural or spiritual, um, and how their philosophy has shifted over time, if it has, about the nature of reality and how best to understand it. So you can wind the clock back as far as you like into your personal history, <laughs> but it'd be fascinating to know your your story on that and where you've got to now. Yeah, I, I don't make a secret about my history here. I, I was raised in a kind of very religious household. I was brought up as a, by a single mother, and I won't go into too much of those details, but it wasn't a great uh, family life uh, for various reasons. And my mom was like deeply, She I didn't know this at the time, but she had told me that when she was a kid, that she had dreamt of being a nun and she had wanted to go into the nunnery or whatever. And mm. she was deeply, like, she has felt like a spiritual person or whatever. And so she was always searching for a place where she felt like she belonged, religiously speaking. And as a kid, we were being taken around to various different 
religious institutions. So I have various memories when I was very young of going to uh, different kinds of Christian churches. And like I saw a Pentecostal church and a Catholic church, which was very surprising to me, all the call and response stuff. It was very orchestrated. I was like very surprised. But anyway, yeah. so we went to a synagogue, we went to a Benai faith place. And she was basically like, uh, she was really trying to find something, I think, uh, looking back on it. And, and exploring finally, the old Christianity too. Yeah. Oh yeah, she was all over the place yeah. in, in that where she really wanted to find something that, that resonated with her. And by chance one day, some Jehovah's Witnesses came over to our house, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that group. Yeah. It's pretty well known, I think in America, I'm not sure how worldwide it is or whatever. But anyway, so they came over and they started talking with her and that began a lifelong journey for her. She currently is still a Jehovah's Witnesses all these many years later. So I think I must have been around, I was very young, maybe 12 or so at that time, 13, maybe at the latest, maybe even, I don't know. Anyway, it's vague memory, it's very early. And she couldn't, she convert, she found it, she found what she was looking for there in that religion yeah. and, and became very serious studying and stuff like that. For me, on the other hand, I was very, I was just almost like naturally, I found it incredible in the sense of just not possible to believe what they were telling me. Like yeah. from the very first time I heard about this stuff, I, was, I just found it not, I just didn't find it reasonable or like believable or like in any way, something that I could make sense of as actually being true in the world, like the way they were describing this supernatural creator being, the personality traits they were ascribing to him as vindictive, like worship me or die sort of attitude. I just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. I'll put you in hell if you don't love me, but I want you to love me, but I will kill you. Like, I just didn't get it. It didn't, so I couldn't picture the kind of person, but he's morally perfect. And, and I, so I just... It just didn't make sense to me, like from the very first time I heard it. Uh, yeah. And so I was just very skeptical and I was always arguing, especially when these Jehovah's Witnesses came around, just always arguing with them about this stuff. And I was just like, loving God wouldn't send us to hell. And I just don't believe that there's that he would give us this gift and then say, now, now I'm going to punish you if you don't pay me back for it. And I just did the whole picture of everything. And then, of course, I learned about once the world came into a little more focus, I learned about the Holocaust and the wars and just human nature generally. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense. Like the problem of evil loomed large in my just like, yeah. how could this be the, the way you're telling me? And so it became, it came to a head, I guess, when I was 14, maybe. And my mom was trying to tell me that I was going to be back baptized. And up to that point, I had never been baptized. And she, you know, she never forced me or anything. And I was like, I'm just not going to do it. And she was like, you're going to, if you live in my house, you're going to do this. And we had other problems as well. But anyway, this was the main thing. And I was just like, that's not going to happen. And so I left home. I ran away from home. Yeah. And I got caught. I stole a, I stole a long story. I stole a motorcycle. I tried to, I stole a motorcycle to go to a library, which was out of town to get a book that I wanted for a book report for my like 10th grade, something I was doing a debate or something. But anyway, I got caught, arrested, sent to juvenile hall and was there until I was 18. I got out when I was 18 and worked for a while, basically fast food. And then I found out that I could get a scholarship to go back to school. And then I did and I took a philosophy course. And I was like, well, I didn't know you could do that. And so here I am. And so wow. I think over... If I was going to think about the arc of that's many, like 40 years, I'm not 40 years, but... That's why I grew the beard partially. I don't normally have a giant beard like this, but I was sick of people not believing that I'm 50. So I'm like, okay, this is, <laughs> yes. But uh, this is a long time ago. But I think if I were to explain like how my views changed, what I would say was that I still find all of the, the stuff in the holy texts of the world to be obviously man-made, yeah. Bible, Quran, Talmud, all that stuff. However, so I'm still like pretty much an atheist about all known religions created by mankind. I just don't believe like the things they say. Hmm. But on the other hand, I think the question, is there 
like the, the question more generally abstractly of theism, is there a creator of the universe that has these abstract properties of moral perfectness, all powerfulness and omniscience or something? I think that's a, a separate question which I think I'm technically agnostic on, which means I think maybe, I think I'm agnostic in a stronger sense than typically you would find. I think that probably there's evidence on both sides for that question that I would take seriously. But keep in mind that idea is compatible with us living in a simulation. If this is a simulation, there's still a creator that's outside of the space time we live in, et cetera. So just saying there's some sort of creator is a very weak claim in my opinion. It's nothing to commit yourself to like the Trinity or the resurrection or like any of this other stuff that you find. Anyway, so I I would split. Like when it comes to like religions, I'm just straight up atheism. When it comes like this more abstract question, is there, is the universe created or not? Then I'm like, I think there's reasons to think yes, reasons to think no, I'm not 100% sure open mind i don't know that's a long-winded answer to your question but i'm not uh, sure it's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> story thank you and it's and there's often gray areas between how people interpret agnosticism or atheism and i, I quite like the definition of atheism which is just lacking a belief in a god rather than being 100 percent sure there isn't uh, partly because i think in a naturalistic worldview outside of formal systems we shouldn't have 100 percent confidence in anything we should always be right. open-minded so in that sense many agnostics in a would also be atheists because they're open-minded, but they don't have a belief in a God. But, right. you know, but I think areas. it's a kind of, I, I agree that what, with what you're saying, I think that's right. However, I would say that the sort of the way I think of agnosticism or the view that I would ascribe to myself is a little bit stronger than that, because I think that it's not just that I lack a belief in God, but which I do, but it, it's that I think that there are reasons that you should have a belief in God and that there are reasons that you should not have a belief in God yeah, And that the two sets of reasons are equally compelling in the sense that they balance or cancel each other out so that rationally speaking, from a kind of detached point of view, there's no compelling evidence on one side or the other that can't be matched by compelling evidence on the other side. It. So it's that it's I lack a belief in God. I lack a belief in not God. It's just I just don't think that I can have a belief one way or the other Got it. Yeah. with respect to that question. So it's yeah, a little bit stronger you. than just like that sort of. Whereas, whereas I'm you know much close to the sort of purer atheist end in that I sent my senses. I'm, I am radically open-minded about even crazy propositions, but there's a functionally infinite number of possible things that could be true for which there's no evidence. And to my mind, that type of theistic God is, is just another one. I wouldn't even know how to. Right. So I'm, I'm further along that extreme than you are. I see. I think there's, and this is maybe connects to the whole sentientism stuff, which we're going to talk about here. But I think there's a question about what counts as evidence. Yeah. And so I, I think like, for example, fine tuning argument for me seems like some kind of evidence for uh, creation. The argument for design, there's versions of it that make sense. You can debunk it, but generally speaking, it's not a terrible argument, I don't think. So mm-hmm. I, I count that sort of stuff as ev- it's defeasible. I think evidence doesn't mean something is true. It just means it points in a direction or something yeah, like that. I agree. And that's partly why I quite I prefer to talk about naturalism really more than science in a sense, because some people think of science as a much more formal, formalized approach that has maybe a narrow conception of evidence. This is just RCTs. Yeah. And whereas I think even personal experience is evidence, there's all sorts of different types of evidence and you can be skeptical of them and you can grade how much weight you should put in them. But I think we should be open-minded about different types of evidence too. Yeah, exactly. So then I would say that I don't think there's no evidence for yeah. the but remember when I say God, what I don't know. So if we live in a simulation and the creator is a teenager in the next universe up, I wouldn't say that's a God necessarily. Yeah. So I'm not, what I'm saying is something more abstract, like a, something that created the universe that we live in. 
it could be what the traditional theists have said called God. It might be this teenager in the next universe up. It could be hyperdimensional mice like in your guide. <laughs> Who knows? So that's why I think this is not particularly, it's a weaker claim to say something may have created the universe than to say, okay, you should have reason to believe that it's that sort of thing, like the yeah. kind of guy described in the Bible who sounds like a genocidal mass murderer, <laughs> not a nice person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it sounds like your, I guess your rejection of that, it sounds like you didn't, you never really took it on of that way of thinking was more about evidence and reason and coherence and it just didn't hang together. But there was also right. elements of the ethical mm. in there as well, because with the guests I've spoken to so far, for some people it's, hold on, this is outright homophobia and sexism. So I'm rejecting this based on the ethics. For others, it's yeah. the inconsistencies in the Bible. Why do the Gnostic stuff get edited out? These things don't make sense. It's much more a technical evidence and reason thing. What, was it a bit of both for you or was it more just logically doesn't hang together? Yeah, it was more logical stuff. Yeah. I never really knew about the social stuff, to be honest. And I look back, I can say, I, I can tell now that my mom was a homophobe, I think. Yeah. And when she found out that one of her friends that she knew for a long time was like a lesbian and she got really freaked out by it. And I look back on that and I can say, okay, so that's, that's where I think. Yeah. Uh, so maybe she found some confirmation of her previous bias. And, and she would say things like, oh, homosexuality is a mental illness and God didn't intend it that way. So I think maybe she found... We would argue about that forever. I remember I went to school in San Francisco and she told me, oh, you tell them that you're straight and they can't have you. And I was like, them, you know, they tell them there's a whole city of people here. Some of them are gay, some of them. Anyway, so it's a whole, whole history. Yeah. But so maybe she had those views antecedently, I guess I would say, mm. maybe as a product of her upbringing. And then maybe she found some confirmation of them in the Christian ethics or something like that. Yeah. And this is one of my, one of my kind of critiques of religious ethics, generally speaking, versus like philosophical ethics. Whereas, you know, what I, uh, when I think of like philosophical ethics, what I think of is like ethical systems that are not based on religious authority or that try to somehow justify ethical claims in a broadly naturalistic way. And something, and there's a lot of tradition philosophy, there's kind of deontology and utilitarianism, virtue ethics. In my way of thinking, I think there's something interesting about each one of those approaches. And there's many variants of each one, obviously. But so what I think is interesting about naturalistic approaches is that they, they get you to think or to, to, um, to reason, I guess I'd say, about what's ethical and what's right in a way that a lot of like religious ethical systems don't. Mm. They just appeal to the authority or to fear do this because you'll be smited or smashed or killed or destroyed or erased from the book of life or God will hate you or whatever. And so they say, if you really ask them, like, why is it wrong? <laughs> because God said so. Why would God say so? What is it that's fine? Like, contrary to God's nature or whatever, however you want to put it, what is it about this act? They can't say, they don't really know. Yeah. And so that to me just seems to be, and they don't even want to think about it. They're just like, well, God said it's bad. It's, but it's, now, of course, there are philosophical ethical systems that are like theistic. So I'm not saying if you think about I'm making this distinction between the religious system yeah. and then the kind of theistical system. I think like natural law systems are that's answered the question I'm answering. There's like a natural law. God set it up. OK, but if you just think, oh, God said it, therefore it's wrong. It's in the Bible. It's wrong. Then I, I don't think you really understand why something is wrong. If you can't articulate like the thing which makes it such that God would condemn it or contrary to his nature. And yeah. of course, that's then you're doing philosophy. And then you have to say, what is it about it that a loving God would reject her? And so then I think you just can't escape. I think it's better to do the naturalistic thing because you have to ultimately do it anyway to make sense of the other side as well. Yeah, I agree. And it's so much of the religious morality is framed as though it is about morality and being a good person, whatever that means. But when it comes down to it, it's really more about obedience and compliance than it is about yeah. 
doing something good because that is the the ultimate answer. The story of Abraham is a great one, right? Which is at the foundation of three of the world's major religions. And the, the simple lesson from that is if God tells you to kill your own child, however much compassion and love you have, that's that's the right thing to do. And one of my previous exactly. guests who was Yasmin Muhammad, grew up at in a very tough fundamentalist Muslim environment in Canada. But she said it was almost put as another level above morality. So there's the ordinary common sense morality around not wanting to needlessly harm other people, right? So that's common sense morality. But this thing is super ordinary. It's, it's above that. It's not even about good and bad. It's about correct and not correct. And again, right. it was really about compliance. And that's what matters. You can do your everyday morality if you like, but ultimately this level of authority exactly just right. overrides I mean- all of it. And it's, it's, to answer, get back to your earlier question, for, for my journey, that was the only kind of ethical component to yeah. the rejection that I had was the obedience issue. And it's like Islam means peace. They People say that a lot. But of course, what they don't say is what it means is peace through submission. It's like how you achieve the peace is by submitting yourself. And then you don't have to worry about anything anymore because everything's already figured out for you and you just do what's commanded. And yeah. that always seemed to me to be like, I, I always felt that there it's undignified to demand work. Worship. And it's quite needy. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that it's really needy. Psychologically, it's super needy to be like, I want you to love me and damn it, if you don't, the woe betide you. And, and so to me, I was just like, yeah, okay, so we're given free will, we're told to use it, we're given reason, and then we're and then we're given all these like ridiculous answers to these serious questions that don't they don't make sense. So it's like, why is there only one God, not 15? Oh, there can only be one king, there'd be power struggles. Okay, but these are perfect beings. It's not like Zeus and Athena. These yeah. are supposed to be a different sort of. So I just never, none of that stuff ever made sense to me. And, but so for the moral stuff, it was more about the, how dare you command me to worship you and then try to make me feel guilty because that you say, well, you gave me this gift. And I was very much like, I didn't ask to be born. And I did, I was a pre-existentialist. I didn't know I was like yeah. a budding existentialist, <laughs> but I was like, I didn't, it was a gift. I didn't, you know, I was thrust into this position. And then, you know, you're telling me analogy I often use is if you, you get bought someone a house, you say, I bought you this house. It's free here, live in it. And then they live in it for 40 years. And then you come and you say, now you owe me all this stuff. You've lived here for 40 years. And you're like, but you didn't tell me that when I moved in, I just, you gave me the thing. And then now you're demanding something from me. So it was like, that's in, in order to make sense of that, I would have to like, there would have to be a moment like before I was born where I was like, God came to me and said, Hey, yo, dude, we're about to have you be born. You'll owe me all this stuff. And I'd have to be like, yeah, the I deal. Sense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the only way it would make sense to me. So yeah, mostly it was like the, it was just, it just didn't rationally make sense to me. And yeah. then once I convinced myself about agnosticism, I tried to like be an optimistic agnostic, like maybe morally perfect and the creator is not a teenager in their underwear, if there is one, but I'm really like a pessimistic agnostic where I think, yeah, I just can't believe yeah. there's something that cares about us and yet set the world up in this way. Like, I just can't, I just really in my heart, like deep down, it just doesn't sit with me the way the world yeah. is, can't be consistent with that kind of thing existing. Yeah. Um, or if it is, geez, whoa, I don't understand a lot of stuff, which is impossible, <laughs> I guess. So. <laughs> And, and my, my, my teenage daughter had a similar conversation with me where she says, I didn't ask to be born and anything I do wrong is your fault anyway, because it's either genetics or the way you brought me up. So, you know, <laughs> and that's teenagers for you. Exactly. But, but, and, we've, and we've come on to, this is the link I find really fascinating because we've gone from what's real to what matters morally. And I think that is part of the reason why some people are hesitant about moving away from a religious worldview, because despite all the flaws you laid out, at least there's a list of rules and there's, right. some people do find a, a sort of, a relief in that ability to submit and just give up and say, I just have to 
comply and do what I'm told. But once we put that aside and we say, look, doesn't make sense to me, there's a bunch of different ways that people can ground their morality. So some will say, okay, if there's no God who's going to torture me in hell forever, and ultimately there's going to be a heat death of the universe, so nothing matters at all. You go down a sort of nihilist approach, right. nothing ultimately matters. Another approach is a you know a fully relativist one where you say, okay, well, if there isn't some externally forced moral system, isn't it just a process of us negotiating in groups and therefore what we negotiate amongst ourselves is fine? And when I see another group over there who's decided to do something that causes awful suffering, I can't judge that because they've negotiated it and it's their culture or whatever. So there's a relativist approach, there's a nihilistic approach, there's a, you know, a bunch of different things. But if I was to ask, given you put the supernaturalism to one side and you mentioned the utilitarianism, deontology, and all the other different ethical systems. Is there something yeah. that's at the root of those? What really does matter morally, ultimately? For you? Yeah, so this is an area where obviously my adult self has a lot more, I don't know if sophisticated, but I'm at least aware of that. It's not as simple as I used to think that it was. But so for me, I was never even remotely, even slightly in, in the slightest way, attracted to either of those views you just mentioned. So nihilism or relativism just mm. seemed to me non-starters. Yeah. I, I just always thought it was obvious that there's things that matter morally and that they are objective, that they transcend me. And maybe that's because, I don't think it was because of all the religion stuff, which I found like we were talking about just like literally incredible, but I was raised, I, I was raised vegetarian. So I'm vegan now and have been for about 10 years or so, but I was raised vegetarian. Yeah. My mom, she turned vegetarian when she was a teenager, basically as soon as she found out like what meat was, because she was, my mom was born in the 1950s. So I hate throwing her under the bus constantly. She's not even here to defend herself, but sorry about that. But anyway, uh, she was born in 1950 and they, they had some wild views back then about uh, if it was futuristic, it was cool. And they thought science was going to solve diseases in the next 20 years or so. And they had all these ideas about how the future of science was going to progress in ways that it hasn't really done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and they were really detached from nature and they had this this view, this worldview that that the more sci fi or high tech or futuristic it was, it would, the better it was. Hence, Tang and all that crap and microwavable food. And people thought, oh, that's just cool. But anyway, so like she grew up on canned ham and green beans and, and stuff. So it's like not even real food in a way. So she didn't really know what the food was or where it came from, in other words. So disconnected from this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Totally disconnected. And so when she found out what meat was, she was, she loved animals and she's very compassionate. And my mom is like a very emotional, compassionate, like suffering. Like she really is, it affects her like in a, like a very empathic, like visceral, visceral way. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she just, she like, she stopped eating meats and her family was like, oh, you can't be healthy and you're going to die and starve to death and blah, blah, blah. And so she didn't care. She stuck with it and she did it anyway. And then she converted her, my dad to vegetarianism and then say raised my sister and I as vegetarians. And, and so, it's interesting that she, she took that choice because his religious worldviews can have an influence on thinking about non-human animal ethics, obviously, right? And one path is that they don't have souls. Humans have dominion. Humans are made in the image of God. Therefore, that gives plenty of excuses to be, you know, human exceptionalist and maybe use animals right. for farming. But for other people, it sounds like your mom was one of these, there was still that connection of there's a rich sense of compassion and empathy here that gets quite simply extended to non-humans. It's interesting. She it is that second part. She is. Yeah, it does. Even in her like community amongst those religious persons, she's ostracized for her views about vegetarianism. She like argues, well, after the creation, they have this view about the world being restored to a paradise and blah, blah, blah. After the 
tribulation and Haman Armageddon. And she argues that in that period, people will return to being vegetarian, basically. And other people are like, no, we'll get to eat meat. And then she's no. And so they, it's still like a debate in that community, which I think is interesting. Yeah, um, arguably their pamphlets, which have the you know, the picture of heaven with the lion and the lamb. And exactly. You know, arguably, that's not just, you know, vegan. That's gone to some sort of David Pierce transhumanist style thing where we've genetically <laughs> exactly. engineered the predators to, you know, eat, beyond, eat impossible burgers. So <laughs> it's so true. Exactly. Yeah. And she has this whole, it's a whole, I don't, we could just sidetrack here, but it's a whole story about how, according to her, the Bible says that humans could, weren't allowed to eat meat until after the flood. Mm. And then like the flood came and the like, animals, food was scarce because all the plants had died in the flood or some crap. And then, then we were allowed, we, we could choose to eat animals. If you believe that story. Okay, great. But who caused that flood again? Oh yeah. Yeah. Until they found out who did that. <laughs> yeah, Don't exactly. be so angry. <laughs> exactly. But, but yeah, so she has a whole worldview worked out about yeah. that, but it's not a commonly accepted one. You're right. But her view is that in the Garden of Eden, they were basically Jainists that they only ate things that fell from the trees naturally and didn't even kill plants, Mm. according to her way of reading that stuff. That's interesting. But anyway, so the point I was making about all that stuff was that I was raised in this way of thinking that it was just like a fact of nature that it's wrong to eat meat. And that's just what I was taught. That's just what I was, before I even knew what was what. I was Mm. just raised to think of animals as um, companions and friends and furry siblings yeah. that got treated in a certain way because they were different, obviously. So they weren't like literally my siblings. They weren't like raising a weird animal is my sister house or anything I'm saying. <laughs> but just like, it was like to the extent possible, we were to think of them as like uh, part of the family, really. Yeah. And I, I remember like looking back on when I was very young, five, and what, my mom had a horse that died and she was so sad. And then I was like, mom, it's just a horse. There's lots of them. And they die all the time. And she was like, yeah, but this one was my friend. Like I knew this one. And that really affected me because I was thinking like abstractly, like, you know, horses die all the time. And it's always sad when an animal dies, but this is just like one out of N that died today, actually. And, but the idea that there was this personal connection, I think that's something that I wish, uh, maybe we'll get to this later, but talk about transhuman stuff. But I think this is a limitation of human beings that we, that the things we see affect us more than the things we don't see, obviously. But it's like mm-hmm. where I was thinking abstractly, here's one horse out of a thousand, let's say that have died today. Each one of those is uniquely sad and so forth. So why be more sad about this one than any other one? And her idea was, I knew this one. So this one meant something to me. But in a sense, those other ones meant some, something too. They, they had the same thing. So to me, I was confused why this horse was more valuable or yeah. why we should be more sad that this one died than like anyone had died. And I still see, I think that's something that is if people, this is sometimes people talk about Buddhism and compassion. This is something that can open up that, that there's no distinction from me and you. And that's opening up new ideas about morality and stuff. I think that would be a nice idea because yeah, it was sad that her horse died, of course, but it's, I think if we could somehow be sad that anything died, then we would act, act very differently. We would change the way we behave quite radically. And so I'm not trying to diminish like that. You should feel sad about someone or love dying. Obviously that is sad, but I guess this kind of goes to what's the ground of morality. I think that although I didn't know it at the time, I was starting to, I think that these ideas about universalizability, which come from like Kantian mm. thinking, that it's this idea that what matters to me is things that I choose, right? And what matters to me, like I got a PhD in philosophy. I don't know if you did or not, but you may have chosen to do something else. And I learned how to play the drums. You may have learned how to play a different instrument or tennis or whatever. So we've made our choices in our life. 
And we think it's important that we be allowed to make those choices and our autonomy and the things that the way we, the, the things we deem important and the way we engage in pursuing those projects ground, I think, a lot of, of, of ethics and morality. And the reason that it does so is because if it's good for, if it's valuable for me to do those things, and if we are alike in the respect of being those kinds of agents, then it's got to be valuable for you to do those things as well. And just as valuable as it is for me to do those things. Yeah. So I think that there's like a literal, a kind of failure of rationality amongst persons who don't see that. And I know that sounds, that's mean because I I don't want to be belittle anyone, but I, I really do think that if you don't really see that other people having freedom or autonomy is, it's valuable because you think yours is valuable. And that is the reason why theirs is valuable. Yeah. Then I just think, yeah. So I, I do, I'm, I've always been attracted to this idea that there's something rational about morality, that it's not, that it's, that acting immorally is like literally not being a hundred percent fully rational. Yeah. And that's a Kantian. I found out later, that's a very Kantian idea. As a kid, I didn't realize that obviously. And I was always like, when I found out like sociopaths and, and so forth, I was like, just those, I couldn't make sense of like a sociopath. Like how could they... Yeah, I just really couldn't make sense of someone who could be like, yeah, I just don't care. But they're rational and they can make plans and get away with stuff. And they just didn't like they just and and it's not that they didn't have like sentiments or emotional attachment to things, but it's just that they didn't recognize that like. When they got angry that their child was murdered and they thought that was wrong of you to murder my child, I'm so angry when the, from the other person's point of view that you murdering their child is just as the reason you're angry is the reason why it would be wrong to do it to them. I just didn't see, I couldn't, I'm, I'm yeah. rambling. I'm not making sense. But anyway, so that was my, as a kid, I just really thought that it was like, there was something about, you could just understand what was right. You could just rationally make sense. And I, I, I sympathize with that view as well, because obviously there's a lot of thought gone into this sort of is ought distinction, Hume's distinction and so on. And some people think it's something that can, a chasm that can never be crossed. There are facts about the world and there are, there's morality and there's right. no way of yeah. linking them together. And um, I flip between thinking, one, that's false and they are linked, or two, I don't really see that it's important, even if they are distinct. Because in a sense, my naturalistic view is that we've evolved as sentient beings that are able to experience good and bad things. We don't yet know exactly what sentience and consciousness are, but I know I don't like suffering and I'm pretty sure you don't either. And in a sense, right. mor- morality is the choice to recognize that fact and to care about it. So I don't, I don't think there's some sort of perfect platonic moral truth out there that's forcing us to do something in the same way as I don't think there's a God that will punish me if I don't. But it almost seems tautological to me that if morality is about anything, it's about concern for others. And if we're going to have a concern for others, we're saying we have a concern for their perspective. And I think we'll come on to this point. If you're going to have a concern for the perspective of others, why would you not have a concern for all entities that have a perspective, i.e., in a sense, are sentient or consciousness, conscious. Well, and that's one of the, and that's one of the the flaws with traditional Kantianism. I would say is that yeah. the the group who gets into the club are just the rational creatures. Yeah, and had this really horrible line about animals. Actually, that he didn't think you could morally harm an animal in any way. So that even if you you caused it great suffering, tortured it to death, you wouldn't harm the animal. You'd physically damage it. So obviously, yeah. harm it that way. But morally, you wouldn't be like doing anything morally wrong on his view, which is yeah. just crazy to me. And that's just absurd. Of course, you, he's not, it's not strictly speaking right to say that if we were fair to Kant, because you might be doing one of two morally wrong things. You might be morally damaging someone whose property the animal is, 
Like yeah. if it's your cow and I mutilate it, then I'm morally wronging you, but not the cow. Or um, you might be morally damaging yourself yeah. by turning yourself into a kind of callous person who's indifferent to suffering. So maybe you're more liable to hit a kid or- A knock-on impact to your intrahuman ethic. But that's yeah, exactly. Matters. But that's the only thing. So that, that to me, obviously that part of the Kantian, when I read about Kant, I was like, yeah, wait, well, no. So that I think is bad. I don't- I think Christine Korsgaard corrects him, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Exactly. I'm a big fan of her work too. So I was going to say that. Yeah. And in a way, that's one of the interesting things for me, because I'm trying to frame this idea of sentientism as actually to be very uh, philosophically pluralistic. So it doesn't say utilitarianism or consequentialism or Kantian or deontology or whatever. There's so much fascinating work to do there to work out which of those systems or which combination of those systems is the right approach. It's almost saying... That's fine. Fight over that stuff. But the most fundamental thing is the most important thing is to set the scope of our moral considerability in the right yeah. way. Because you can, if you're Kantian, but you only see humans as ends in themselves, you've made a mistake. You need the cause guardian approach of saying all, essentially all sentient beings are ends in themselves. So you can still be a Kantian and take non, non-human animal ethics very seriously. In the exactly. same way as although Bentham you know, said it's about can they suffer, most utilitarians still are almost exclusively focused on human utility and somehow conveniently forgotten that non-humans can experience, can be sources of value and utility as well. And even in a virtue ethics or a deontological approach, you could still set those rules or those virtues and define them in a way that grants consideration to sentient beings, not just humans, or not just to subsets of humans, which we have plenty of problems still to work through on intrahuman discrimination too. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. So I I think you're right about that. And, you know, I, my view, I think you can derive utilitarianism from Kantianism. So I think you you can have that, but because, yeah, I think you're right. Obviously pains and pleasures matter morally, but I don't think that the only thing that matters morally. Yeah. And I I think that even if we were like, you philosophers like to talk about these things called zombies, like not cool zombies, philosophers. zombies. zombies. Yeah, exactly. So they lack consciousness, but they're functionally identical to us and they physically identical. They do all the same stuff, but they don't feel anything. They're not sentient in the sense that I assume we're talking about, because if you mean by sentient that they have phenomenal consciousness or they experience or that they, there's something that it's like from their point of view, as opposed to like Roomba. I don't know if Roomba's sentient in your sense. I doubt it because there's, I doubt Roomba's conscious and therefore probably not sentient, but certainly it responds to the environment. So the way I tend to use sentience is, is not just the detection of stuff and reaction to it. It is some form of subjective experiencing of something. And it's, I've, again, I'm a total amateur in the space, but it seems interesting to me how the term sentience and consciousness interrelate because to my mind, there's a massive overlap because in a sense to be sentient in this context requires consciousness because you have to be aware of, you have to be experiencing suffering or flourishing or something, which is a form of consciousness. But it seems that part of the reason I've, I prefer to focus on sentience and I think why you know, Singer and a bunch of other people focused on sentience was because quite often people load loads of extra stuff into consciousness. So they'll right. say, oh, there's creativity or there's higher order capabilities or there's the ability to plan, whatever else. And, I, and to me, sentience almost seems like the morally salient piece of consciousness. It's that capacity to have a valenced experience. So it seems, but then you get into some weirder spaces, of course. And again, you spend a lot of your time on this space because as people start to think about more expansive views of where consciousness might live, are electrons conscious? Um, In a way, sentience almost gives us a chance to escape that Mm. trap for me as well, because if an electron is in some minimal form 
conscious, I still don't think it's capable of experiencing suffering or flourishing, and therefore the type of no. It depends on the type of panpsychism. Some panpsychists yeah, I think do uh, want to say they have a valenced experience, like maybe two electrons, two particles repelling each other as oh get away, and two particles <laughs> you know, like seeking each other out. And, and, I, and so who knows? And I, and I, and I find that. <coughs> genuinely difficult. We can, we can come on to this. This is the next question I was going to ask you, really. But personally, I find that genuinely difficult to conceive of because when you know I'm experiencing something, you can actually, to some very poor level of granularity, track the information processing that's going on there. Whereas in an electron, I, there just doesn't seem to be any information processing going on that relates to that experiencing. Right there, exactly. If there's anything it yeah, feels that, like to that, be an electron, it's bloody boring, right? It's just you almost yeah. can't do anything to an electron, and for photons, time doesn't even pass. That's stand. the whole point of their their view. Is I'm not a panpsychist, so yeah, but I do take it seriously because this is a long, convoluted side discussion. But I'm happy to have it. But anyway, because the thing that matters to me about the relation of the mind to the brain, one one of the things that mainly matters to me is getting the mind to do work in the physical world, yeah. the mind-body problem, going back to Descartes and all that stuff, how does the mind interact with the body? And in particular, how does consciousness interact and produce physical effects or how do physical things in the world cause conscious experiences? And epiphenomenalism is the view that they, the mind may be caused by the brain, but doesn't have any effect on it. And that's a kind of property dualism, which says there are physical properties that do all the causal work, but then there are these conscious properties that don't do anything. The traditional analogies are like the steam uh, from a steam engine, the shadow uh, that you cast. It's like the steam from the engine is a product of the engine, but doesn't causally affect the engine. Okay, so if that's your view of consciousness, and holy moly, that sucks. I, I would say that's terrible because here we are talking about consciousness and none of it is caused by conscious experience. <laughs> it's all yeah. caused by something else. And it's one thing to find out. Some people are surprised, like you put your finger in the fire and pull your finger back. And we have what I would consider like next to conclusive evidence that the finger is moving out of the fire before you experience the pain because there's a, a circuit that goes to the spinal cord where the motor neurons connect to the finger and pull your arm back. But where you process the pain information is up here. And of course the distance is twice as long. So it takes longer for the signal to get here. So you yeah. can just straightforwardly deduce that the motion occurred before you experienced the pain. And you can think about that. And if you actually think about your experience, you might notice it actually that you felt like you're moving your hand like a split fraction of a second before you felt the pain. Yeah. When I get out of bed in the morning, I'm like, I'm quite often thinking, I've just got out of bed. How did that happen? <laughs> right, that, exactly. You know, one of my previous guests said until he's had his first <laughs> or second coffee, he's not sure he's fully, he's, he's actually, actually fully conscious. So that's one way. Um, that's another way. Yeah. But my, my point was that may happen, but that's very different. And so you may be a little bit surprised by that, but that's very different than saying mm. that there's no time ever when conscious experience caused any physical occurrence. Yeah. Uh, or, or, and you're like, what really? No. Never. So it's not logically incoherent. It's just one of those like, gee, I hope it's not true sort of views. So yeah, I don't think yeah. you can like really refute it by finding a, a logical flaw in the theory or even that it's in opposition to any empirical evidence. In fact, the reason why people are taking this so seriously is because if you look back at the 1800s, what you just see is a parade of discoveries about what animals can do without their cortical parts of their brain. Like you chop off the top of a frog's brain and they can do, they can swim, they can still catch a fly, they keep their balance. Looks like a lot of these yeah. behaviors are, don't involve the part of the brain that we think is involved in these higher level functions. Anyway, so the point here is that while epiphenomenalism is not strictly speaking something that you can refute, it would be nice if it were false. 
And so one of the views that you can make sense of how this kind of interaction occurs is like a mind-brain identity theory, which says the mind is the brain. And that's, I, I, that's the view that I think would be nice if, if you can make sense of it, because it gives you this causal, like, why does the pain yeah. cause you to move? Because it's the brain state and brains cooked up the body. But if you can't buy that idea, and some people have this like resistance to the idea that the brain and the mind are identical, then I think panpsychism gives you a way to get causal efficacy, but still say consciousness is fundamentally different than the physical, because what they end up saying is, look, an electron doesn't have the property of being conscious in addition to its other properties. What they're saying is that electron is a bit of consciousness. That's yeah. what it is. And yeah, just it's an identity. That's all there is to it. So hmm. if the electron is a bit of consciousness, then whenever the electron has a physical effect, it's really consciousness having that physical effect. And so then you can make sense in a certain way about how the brain having its causal structure and effects on the body is really being caused in a certain way by um, consciousness. And so you get consciousness back at least into the mix in a, in a certain way. It's not as good as the identity theory, I would say, but mm -hmm. it's at least in there. So that's why I think the reason why panpsychism has been popular is because it seems like it can solve like in a certain sort of sense, there's like an impasse because we have we have dualism, which has never been able to really make sense of how the mind and the body interact with each other in a serious way. And we have physicalism, which can do that, but which many people have these conceptual difficulties with. I'm not one of them, but mm -hmm. many people do. So you can't deny that many people do because yep. they Indeed. do. So <laughs> panpsychism is, comes along and says, oh, we can have best of both worlds. We can make sense of how conscious is unique and special but also how it has an effect on the physical world. And so both of these problems get solved, yay. And so I think that basically explains, in my opinion, why panpsychism is so popular right now, why people take it seriously. Because as you say, it's very, it's almost laughably silly for someone to come along and say electrons are conscious. And then you go, okay, so what are they really saying though? It, if you have a certain view about what physics is and how physics works, then there's a gap in physics. If you have a certain view about consciousness, looks like it's the perfect thing to fill that gap. And so the two kind of go together. If the stars all align right, then you can make sense of why you would be motivated to postulate that. And it's one of those things in the history of science where you can see there's predecessors of this kind of move. In my opinion, the introduction of fields is exactly parallel almost in every respect. If from particles to fields, people thought fields, those aren't physical things. What the, mm. what the hell is a field? It has, has a value at every point in space. This is ridiculous. But of course, now fields are the paradigm of physical and quantum field theory is the dominant way we think about the nature of physical reality until something better comes along, et cetera. And so, well, is it really out of the realm of reasonable things to do to postulate some radically new kind of thing as uh, uh, to make sense of the data you have the history of science says no so the question is do we have data that needs to be made sense of here and the the panpsychist says yeah first person data which mm. can't be made sense of from the third person so it's exactly analogous and while i don't fully buy that argument i i think it's a serious argument and that panpsychism is not a silly view so that that I, I get caught up a lot of times defending views that it just i'll say if they're not silly and then people say oh you believe xyz <laughs> yeah, i don't really I just think they're not yeah exactly i just don't think they're silly views but anyway so that's why i would say why people yeah. take it seriously and no, why thank you because you're because we can't first personally make sense of what it would be like to be obviously to be an electron so there's got to be theoretical reasons that would push you to accepting that conclusion and i think the way i just outlined is generally how it works yeah and again from an amateur point of view i'm very comfortable with a sort of physicalist story about what's going on and it seems to me that 
quite a lot of the motivation to reject a physicalist view comes almost from an emotional place sometimes. It's almost the sense that I just feel too special. I feel too weird to just be physics. And I just think we probably just are physics and that's it. And everything that that I think we've learned about where we have evidence that there's consciousness and sentience seems to be so tightly uh, correlated and linked with certain patterns of information processing that I think they just are the running of that information processing. But in a way, I don't... (laughs) You could argue, is that another route back to sort of panpsychist view? Because if I'm saying they are just one thing, maybe that's linked to the fact that maybe all information processing is in some minimal sense conscious. Yeah, I'm not sure. And again, I need to be uh, clear here because this is another thing that sentientism, sentientism is irritatingly neutral on. It doesn't say this is what sentience is. It just says whatever it is, whether it has a pants basis or a physicalist basis, whatever it is, it matters morally. It has moral salience. And we should keep following a naturalistic approach to try and understand more and be comfortable not knowing. Right? Exactly. I agree with all that. But I would just say my earlier, going back to the thing about zombies and the reason why I brought all that, that stuff up, is because so on the sentient view, sentientist view, yeah, zombies country. don't matter morally. I, I assume they don't have conscious experience. They behave sophisticatedly. They'll say things like "That's terrible. It hurts. Stop it, please. I'm begging for my life, etc." But there's no inner lights. They don't by by definition. They don't experience um, anything. There's nothing that it's like for them to mm. have their limbs torn apart or to be crushed and. You know, Think of it as some medieval torture that people used to love, having rats burrow through your abdomen or some crazy thing yeah. they did. You do that to them, they writhe around, they scream in agony, in seeming agony, but by definition, there's nothing that's like to be them. So on the sentientist view, then that's like a perfectly moral thing to do. It's just like breaking a toaster or something like that. Maybe yeah. it's not as prudent or something, but it's not morally wrong. Whereas on the way I think about things, I think, no, no, wait, whoa, you're still doing something wrong. It's still you're torturing that thing. It doesn't feel anything, but it clearly has intentional states like it's saying stop and its behavior indicates that it prefers. So I sort of think if you think about its preferences, you have to have consciousness to have preferences. Like, I don't really think so. Maybe I could be pushed, but my intuition is, no, it's still morally wrong to, to torture the zombie. Not as morally wrong as torturing a human being. Yeah because the consciousness adds some, obviously some more consideration, but I don't think, I don't think that removing it negates all moral considerations. In addition, I think if a zombie says, I promise to pick you up from the airport and then doesn't show up, then I would morally blame the zombie as breaking their promise and hold it accountable um, for it's, if, if it's truly like a, a, it's not sentient, but if it behaves in a, a pragmatically rational way, a, a instrumentally rational way, then I would assign moral value to its, to its promises and so forth. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that, yeah. yes, I agree with the premise of sentientism, except that I think it's, unless what you're saying is that only this matters, in which case my intuitions think, no, because I'm the type of guy, I watch these videos on YouTube, I see Roomba stuck in a corner, like bumping into the corner, and I'm like, someone help the Roomba, like Roomba <laughs> doesn't want to be in the corner, can someone help the Roomba? And is it like... Could it be outweighed by like other things? Yeah, very easily. But do I feel like some sense of obligation if I were in the room to go help the Roomba? Yeah, I I would. And do I think that's like over anthropomorphizing or something? No, I don't think it is actually. I think that there's the Roomba has certain properties which are rudimentally like at the like sub cockroach level of intentionality or something like that. So not sophisticated, but at least that level of concern 
should be extended to it. So if we're talking about like reason and evidence and so forth, I, I think, yeah, obviously pain states, suffering, valence matters, but I also, I'm not sure that's all that matters. Yeah. Now, how many, if you have, how many zombies would you line up on one side? You have the trolley coming and like, you have one human here and a hundred zombies. Okay. Am I going to sacrifice the human or the zombies? At that point, the human's going to outweigh a lot of zombies, I think, but the zombies don't count for nothing, I think is ultimately. And there's a a philosopher named Jeff Lee who works at UC Berkeley and he's written on this kind of idea about pluralism, this idea of deflationary pluralism about consciousness that even if they don't have consciousness, they have properties which are consciousness-like for them which give them, give them value. Now, I don't know if I wouldn't say they have as much value as like a, a typical human, but even, I think this is a point the utilitarians are used to making already in the animal literature, because while animals matter, obviously, I, I think even someone like Singer, his thesis was maybe you could find a case of a human and an animal where they, they matter equally, like a senile human and a fully functioning adult ape. Maybe in that kind of case, cognitively, they're matched. And so they matter morally the same. But generally, in the vast number of cases, the humans outweigh the animals simply because of the kinds of suffering they can have, the higher yeah. sophisticated future sufferings. Is this going to last? Are you going to stop? So it's always been part of the idea of the literature here that just because animals matter doesn't mean that they're like they're equivalent to humans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, so I think that that was, I just want to be careful and point that out was yeah. while I'm on board with the sentientism, generally speaking, I think that there are these other areas where we might want to say, so for instance, trees, like trees, I think are a good practical case, because I think one of the things that we're learning recently about plants, generally speaking, is they're much more sophisticated than we previously thought. Mm. In fact, they can be described as doing things we would normally reserve the word cognition for. In fact, there's some evidence that they can, you know, be classically conditioned, sensitive to cues in the environment about which way to grow their roots as indicating where the water may be, stuff for stuff like that. So if that's, and that's all new stuff. So I'm not about saying it's proven or anything. I'm saying yeah. there's evidence that's emerging that these things are very sophisticated, but, but are they conscious Mm. Are they sentient in the sense we're talking about? There, I'm a little bit hesitant to say that the behavioral evidence justifies that conclusion. And so for someone like me, I would want to say consciousness, if it, the, the primary evidence we have for it is restricted to things with brains, Yeah. first of all. And so primarily, I, I don't think that, well, I, I don't think we can rule. So even if trees lack consciousness, I still think they may when I see someone cut a tree down for no reason, it does make me sad. And it's okay. That is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's not, and that's not just for instrumental reasons. There's also a sense of has some, it has know, some value. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah I think, it's a living thing. Yeah. And, and, and I, again, I can draw a distinction between my personal view and, and sentientism more broadly, because I take personally, I take a reasonably strict traditional view around seeing ultimately all value coming back to the quality of sentient experience. But at the same time, I'm very open-minded about what types of things might be sentient. I, I don't think personally plants are likely to be sentient because in the same way as a thermostat has an input and a motor response, as we do, we have a perception and a motor response, but we also have some other information processing that is the experiencing going on that I don't think plants are likely to have. But again, be open-minded. But to your other point, while I'm reasonably strict and think that I might be generous to the pea zombies because I'd, if I saw their behavior and their information processing architecture, I'd actually probably judge that they have a good probability of being sentient. So right. you know, that would make, that would give me pause for thought anyway. But even if, even if the simulator opened up a window and said, they are zombies. Um, Demonstrated it equivalent. That, then you would change the way you treated them. 
If you had irrefutable evidence that yeah, they lacked yeah. consciousness, then you would. And I think that brings me to the second point, which is that, which is that the way I'm framing but no, sense. But what, are you saying yes to that question? I think I am. Yeah. I'm personally, I'm reasonably strict about it. But most other sentientists, I don't think are. So in a way, sentientism is saying you have to have moral consideration for all sentient beings. But if you want to go beyond, that's fine. There may well be other things that have value too, but at least don't exclude any of the sentient beings. And I think that's right. you know a couple of other counter positions like biocentrism or ecocentrism, which explicitly go further. And I'm open-minded about there being other sources of value beyond sentences as okay. well, as long as in granting that, you don't exclude any of the beings that are very obviously sentient. And I'd argue that's what most of the environmental movement does today is it's you know, right. caring about rocks and rivers and habitats and ecosystems and species, but conveniently carving out farmed and most wild animals from moral consideration. Exactly. So, and, so that's, it's, it's almost like a baseline too. rather than a complete answer. It's just saying, look, at least you have to have consideration for I, sentient stuff. I like stuff. that, actually. I agree with that way of putting it, yeah. Let's keep open-minded, so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so the, fi- the final question, and another easy one, is to think about the future. And in a way, I think you and I are in a, sometimes a slightly strange situation because I think we're reasonably well convinced that a naturalistic approach is the best way of understanding reality, engage with reality honestly to understand it provisionally and probabilistically and with uncertainty, humility, fire. Right. That seems an obviously sensible way to go about choosing what to believe. And then on the ethics side, you know, sentient beings seem almost tautologically to be appropriate objects of moral consideration. But most people on the planet disagree with us. And one of the themes that's run through lots of these conversations is it seems like there's a logical and a moral argument that leads should lead a billion people to agree with you and me, and then we'll march on right. to a wonderful future. But in reality, <laughs> the reality is very different. Most people are brought up in systems of social norms and cultures and traditions that one, teach them that it's okay to believe things without evidence or without good evidence. And two, right. that it's absolutely fine, normal, natural, necessary to exclude vast tranches of uh, sentient beings from any meaningful moral moral consideration, sometimes humans as well, but certainly most non-human animals. So in that weird context where... Yeah, um, it is weird. Yeah, I I guess there's two ways of asking the question. One is, what sort of utopian future could you imagine if 8 billion people agreed with us roughly and (laughs) what could that future look like? But also more prosaically, what are the sort of practical levers that we can pull and maybe the field of philosophy can pull to try and make the world a better place, save us from ourselves. Yeah, this is such a, that's a tough and good question, but I can just say as someone who's grew, who grew up being vegetarian, as we were talking about earlier and currently I'm vegan, as we are also mentioning, that I've just seen a tremendous amount of change in the, in our society in that amount of time. I remember, I think I was in fifth grade and uh, some kid came up to me out of the blue, I don't even know this kid. He just walked up to me and he said, my dad said, real Americans eat meat. And he just punched me, just straight punched me after that. And then wow. I said something mean afterwards as well, which I won't repeat, but he called me a pinko and a commie and some homophobic slur. And that was, this is in fifth grade. And that's, so it's like, at the time I was very angry, obviously, but I, looking back on that, it's like, he learned that at home. <laughs> he, those aren't his words. That's a fifth yeah. grader. It doesn't come up with those ideas. So that, that was an attitude that he was getting from his house. And that was an attitude, to be honest, I encountered quite often growing up, that there was something like, I don't know, like immoral about what I was doing. And, and I felt the other way. I felt like surrounded by ghouls, by, by goblins who, who I remember not to get too emotional about it, but it's, yeah, I remember going to Thanksgiving at my grandparents' house and seeing the turkey on the table. And yeah. I was like, 
you know, I, I knew turkeys there and I had friends that were turkeys and I would like think, I wonder what kind of personality this turkey had. Was he playful or they, so I grew up around a lot of animals and I think that was beneficial because I got to get to know them as like individuals and then you yeah. get to see acts and that's and to bring it back to the story about the horse earlier about how why my mom was i was making a point about the general suffering versus con- particular stuff but also that once you do spend time with animals you do see how each one's individual and when one dies that is you do lose something that's unique yeah and that's what's so sad about the meat industry you think of all the pigs and chickens that are just slaughtered and each one of these things is a unique individual creature that has a personality and that you could that could be a friend to you and that you could so it, it it's very growing up in this way i felt very inundated surrounded by like callous indifference to all of this suffering and torture it's quite and traumatizing it's like, it, it's very, tra- and people, they, they don't understand or take the hamburger yeah. off your pizza. And I'd be like, okay, so if that was a human thumb, would you would take it off your pizza and just eat it? If you felt, they'd be like, no, that's gross. I'd be like, exactly. Now you're starting to see. And people just didn't understand. They And, the, and even now they don't. They're like, oh, that's a dietary choice. And it's a lifestyle. Like, no, it's not. It's like yeah. an ethical, yeah. moral position that's I'm not doing this for my health. Like I, I wouldn't choose to eat like this probably because my tastes run towards, you know, I do, I like Satan and I like, although it, to be honest, like the Impossible Burgers gross me out. They're a little too on the yeah, almost and, too good. <laughs> yeah. I spent my whole life yeah. like, res- like you know, there's something like dying in my food, like alarm bells, ah, get it out of here. So I can't, I haven't got to the point where I can really enjoy an Impossible. My wife likes them. I'm like, I can't. Yeah, Even though I, is- logically, I know like I should be all right with it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, a different story. But anyway, I'm getting distracted. My point though is that, so growing up in this way, I, I saw just, it was very hard for me to understand why people didn't care. And so that was a question. Is like, I was like, I didn't, they, like they, people caught in this like completely comically irrational position of, being like you watch on the news and there's a horse that falls through the ice and the helicopters are coming and the rescue crowd is there and they're like, we're going to save this horse. And they're lowering the ladder down and people are distraught and they're running around on the, and meanwhile, behind them, there's a slaughterhouse and they're just like lining up the pigs and killing them one after. And you're like, how can they not, how do they not see the like massive, Oh, I love horses and dogs, but chickens and pigs, but Dennis Leary, the comedian, he used to make a, 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 a comedy routine out of this kind of point. He would say people would line up and give all the in animals interviews. It's like, Oh, what are you a baby otter? You do cute things with your hands. You are free to go. What are you? Oh, a cow, you're a hamburger. Get in the, get in the bus. You're, you know, so it's this, this yeah. attitude we have that, no, you're a food. No, you're a cute creature, um, but they're all cute. And I, I think that, yeah, people are so detached from animals and animal nature and just like being around animals and getting to know them and having them be part of their life, not as workers or as devices to be used like on a farm or something, mm-hmm. but just as companions, like as creatures that you hang out with and that you get to know, I think that's missing. And and when we do that, it's the same sad thing you find with racism, all sorts of things. Like when you get to know yeah. people, you're like, you're like, we're not that different. You and I, yeah. but when you don't get to know them, you're like, yeah, you're the other. It's and I think a lot of, yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think that's something like what we have with animals that we just grow up thinking that unthinkingly, but so to me to, to look at a menu and see a pig categorized as protein, just reduced to that is it's insulting. I think to the animal, it's disrespectful to their personhood. Yeah, and I, some people find that controversial. I really do think dogs, pigs—they're persons. They're just simple ones, but they are persons. I think when you get down to chickens and stuff, are they? I don't know. Yeah, maybe, but with dogs and pigs, I think it's pretty straightforward. Anyway, 
I don't think they're humans, obviously, but I don't see person and human as overlapping extensively in the like space of minds, mm. as it were. But anyway, so the point here is that if you're looking at like how things have changed and evolved and what can we do, then ultimately I've been heartened at the same, but at the same time, very depressed because while attitudes are changing and people, I say I'm vegan now and people, okay, they know what it means at least. Yeah, that's progress of a sort. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Whereas before they were mystified and I remember going to McDonald's and asking for hamburger with no meat and they were just like... What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, things have progressed in that respect. But in the other respects, it, it, we haven't seen progress. What we've seen is a kind of regress where they've hidden a lot of the animal cruelty. I was talking to some guy just at a kid's birthday party the other day. And he was like, oh, I read this book about the meat industry. And I didn't realize all the shit that they do. And it horrified me. And I'm trying to eat less meat. And I was like, yeah, dude. If everyone knew that, you think people would change? Not everyone would stop, but a lot of people, and they know that. The media yeah. industry, they know that. So they hide it from us, and they're very good at it. And it's gotten laws so cynical now. Yeah, exactly. It's gotten so marketing. cynical. Exactly. In that respect, it's. I think we haven't made a lot of progress. It's gotten worse in the meat industry. The lobby is very powerful still. And But why is that? I think, like you say, that's yeah, the marketing mostly because people, they still think like, meat is food. Like they can't see what, as a kid, I always got that question. You don't eat meat. What do you eat? That was all. Now they know some like tofu, seitan, like vegan cheese. Yuck. Like they know some of the stuff, but actually vegan cheese has gotten much better uh, lately. But anyway, that's yeah. the point though, is that they still don't, they, they don't reckon, like they can't picture themselves, like not having meat as part of their diet really. Mm. And part of it is because it tastes so good. And I used to always say, this is an offensive trigger warning kind of way of putting it. But as a kid, what I would say is, yeah, of course, meat tastes good. Probably sex feels good. That doesn't mean that I'm allowed to go around and rape. If there's something immoral that you're doing, then it outweighs the pleasure that you get from do from the immoral thing. And sir, a serial killer probably experiences pleasure from torturing someone to death. That doesn't mean that they should do it. And I think it applies pretty much directly to this case that, yeah, meat may taste good, but if you don't need it to survive, then the pleasure can't justify what we're doing to the animals. And then, but see, even then though, I get, it gets real cynical because I, I don't like getting into these debates or arguments with people. It's okay, but what if we raise the animal nicely and it has a nice, and then we sneak up in the night and kill it in its sleep. And then can I eat it? It's like, why are we so desperate to find ways to eat the meat? That's what I don't understand. It's like, you don't yeah. need it to survive. Yeah, it probably tastes good. Lots of things taste good, but there are other things that taste just as well. I've never had meat, so I don't know, but I can't honestly say. But I, that was a, one of the sidetrack. That was one of the things that I always found very weird too, is people were like, oh, I feel sorry for you. You've never had that. You've never tasted ribs. And I'd be like, yeah, I've never tasted ribs. I don't think that's a reason to feel sorry for me. I've had barbecue sauce and things that are barbecued and they're delicious. And I understand cooking on fire is good and all that stuff. But to feel sorry for me because I haven't engaged in this like horrible activity, I, I just, anyway, so if things yeah. could change, then I think that ultimately to have some awareness of where food comes from, what animals are, what their natures are, that they are loving, caring, kind creatures. They do have familial connections. They do make, I just think people don't, they're just like, they think of them as these walking carrots or something. Yeah, like that. objects. And they, yeah, exactly. And it's just, so if we could change that would be great. Now, can we do that? I'm not very optimistic because we can't even get people to care about other people. So it's really hard, it's an uphill battle. And if you look at humans track records with other humans, so I'm not optimistic that we're gonna be making huge progress anytime soon because there's so many messed up things that humans do to people. So even if you convinced everyone that humans mattered, excuse me, that animals mattered morally, you still, I think would get these kind of 
work because you know people can the other humans matter but you can yeah. always think of a way to overcome it so i don't know but i definitely think that in the history of the universe mankind will look back on this time and see factory farming as one of the great moral atrocities of history yeah. like on the level of all the great moral atrocities and so i, I think that's whatever you think about meat eating yeah that factory farming is indisputable beyond question i think that is horrible for the people that work there for the animals that are there for us as diet, for the environment, on every moral scale that you can imagine, factory farming is just immoral. Yeah, I agree. And, this, and this, in, interestingly, there is quite a lot of potential common ground there, even with people who still consume animal products, nearly all right. of which come from factory farming. You do surveys about factory farming and a surprisingly high proportion of people, the Sentience Institute has done some good stuff on this, actually want to see it banned. But exactly. And that's, well, this is, hold, can I just say real quick, this is, so here, this is where, I don't know. So we're going to talk about the perfect is the enemy of the good and all that stuff. So there, there was a recent, uh, like a few years ago, someone wrote an article in the New York Times, of a philosopher of bioscience, and I forget his name. I should look it up. But uh, he was arguing basically that we should genetically engineer slaughter animals so, so that they, they don't feel pain. Yeah. So that they're congenitally insensitive to pain. And it's not that far-fetched that we could do that. So there's just a certain brain areas that we'd have to modify and then they would behave in various ways and so forth, but they, they would be, they could be damaged, but not feel the pain. And his argument was there's so much suffering in the meat industry that if we did this, it would alleviate all that suffering. And then while animals would still be mistreated and so forth and so on, they wouldn't suffer in the course of their mistreatment. And therefore he argued that morally, this is the best thing to do. We should be working towards this goal. And I thought I was amongst a group of some vegans, I think, responded by saying, this is horrible. <laughs> yeah, in the short run, it would alleviate suffering maybe. But the, the larger thing we need to do is change people's attitudes towards animals, not reinforce this idea that there are things that we can mess with and, and modify in any way that we see fit. And there are so try. many better, easier alternatives already right. available right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. So then it's to go back to this question, like, why are we so desperate to find ways to eat meat? when we don't need it to survive. I've always been the first to say, if I was alone on a desert island with yeah. a cow, after three weeks or so, probably I'd be looking at the cow like a hamburger. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna starve to death. I doubt it. I've never been in that situation. I've gone hungry because I haven't eaten meat, but I've never starved to death yeah. or been close to it. But I imagine that in that situation, psychologically, at some point I would eat the hamburger. People eat other people. So I assume I'd break that yeah. barrier. But so I've never been like the type of purist who says never eat meats and not everyone can afford a vegan lifestyle. And all those things I understand are yeah. that societal issues they need to change. So I'm not ignorant of those things. I think they're important. However, all things else equal. I think that what we need to do is change people's attitudes towards animals. And then a lot of these other issues will change as well. And this goes back to some of our earlier discussions about biblical stuff. It's like, why do people take the message from that uh, to be that we can do with animals what we please rather than what it actually says, which is that animals were put under our care and that we were put in charge of them and to treat them like children, to steward them. And we've done a terrible job of that. <laughs> so if you really take that seriously, then we're not doing what we were told to do well at all. And yeah, anyway, I think that it's, uh, if I could click a button overnight that I think would help make things better, I think that, yeah, getting people to rethink the relationship to animals would, would yeah. do that. Now, it wouldn't solve it because I know hunters, for example, and they don't care. They know the deer. They want to kill it anyway because they yeah. like killing, actually. The thrill. <laughs> and, and I know there's, I argued with conservationists and they're like, yeah, we got to control the population and there's more suffering if we don't. So hunting should be allowed. And there's all sorts of debates about that. And I understand it's a hugely complex issue. But ultimately, 
if I were like king of the universe, I would outlaw carnivores. I don't think we need them. And I think we could breed versions of tigers that were herbivorous or at least omnivorous. And so I, I don't really, if we're going to change or modify anything, <laughs> I don't think we should make cows insensitive to pain. I think we should make carnivores extinct. And so that's that to me seems like a worthwhile goal worth working towards. And ultimately, I would like to be myself photosynthetic if I could. And in fact, I think that is an argument against the existence of a morally perfect God. The fact that humans aren't photosynthetic is pretty telling because just a much nicer system, pure light turned into energy, byproduct oxygen, or chewing up flesh and biological material off outputting defecation and urine. I don't know. It's clear to me which one seems like the better option. <laughs> so, if uh, there is a designer, that was a massive mistake. So, yeah. yeah. And you could even make the sunlight flick taste differently. So like maybe sunlight in the morning gives you the taste sensation of bacon and eggs and maybe yeah. sunlight lunch gives you sensation of BLT or whatever. So I, if you like gustatory expressions, if there is a creator that could have set up that way. And actually I've looked into it. It's not impossible that humans could be photosynthetic given existing photosynthesis is pretty inefficient actually most of the energy from the sun is lost but if we had existing levels of photosynthesis in humans we need about eight hours of sunlight a day for our energy levels um, for our calorie intake which is a lot to be outside mm. and a sunny day but anyway so it's not impossible and i've always found eating to be mildly disgusting like the idea of chewing up food and grinding it up and mixing it with saliva and like digesting it and obviously i like the taste but the idea of actually going through the mechanics of it is... Well, maybe we'll um, get the chance to redesign ourselves to be make it easier for us to be more compassionate. Maybe that's the plan. Well, I, I, I think we should. Closing this out, you were talking about the future, where we'd go. So I've been trying to tell a story about why things are changing. So I'm somewhat optimistic, but things really are also not changing as much. So I'm somewhat pessimistic. But at the same time, ultimately, I think that I, I am a, a kind of transhumanist, ultimately. And I do think that transhumanism it represents one of our secular ways of trying to achieve the deepest goals of humankind, yeah. which are often enshrined in religious texts, but they aren't religious goals. They're just human goals, but they've been like equality, universal compassion, turning the earth into a paradise, no one's suffering anymore. All of those ideas that you find in religion, those aren't, I don't think of them as religious ideas. They're human. That's what humans, yeah. that's what we want. Yeah. And transhumanism is a way of saying, we don't need a God to come and do it for us. Maybe we can do it for ourselves. So maybe it's the ultimate hubris. When I was growing up in a religious household, my mom always told us. So one of my fundamental questions, I hate harping on this, but one of my questions was like, what is this deal with God and Satan? Okay. So God knows everything. And Satan knows that God knows everything. So here comes Satan. And he says, oh, you, I'm going to challenge you. But he knows full well that God knows everything. So he knows how this is going to work out. So like Satan is massively irrational. He's like completely dumb if he doesn't understand that God already knows how this is going to work out. So it's futile, like it's completely pointless. And yeah, that, that, anyway, so I'm getting distracted. I, I'm going down the rabbit hole. But anyway, so that just, it never made sense to me that like, he set the system up. He knew how it was going to work. He like, he's put every domino in place. He set the motion. He knows exactly everything. And yet we have all these anyway. So, so I think the transhumanism bit is a way for us to realize those desires that we have and that we don't need God to come down and do it for us. And that we are going to try to figure it out. Oh, it's, that's why I was getting, let me just finish my thought. As a child, my mom always told us that's why, why Satan was allowed to be let loose on the world. So when I would say, why doesn't he just smite God? Smite, why doesn't God just smite Satan, get it over with? The answer was, well, because God wants to prove once and for all that when humans try to do it themselves, they can't do it. 
So that next time when someone comes around and says, oh, humans can do it themselves, leave them alone, God will say, oh, look, we did that and they failed massively and they can't. And I, I always found that to be really silly. So maybe, so my point was maybe this transhumanism idea is going to be our ultimate failure and they're going to be right. And we're going to try really hard and they're going to say, see, you need God. And when you try to replace them, you fail. I, that could happen. But maybe technology and transhumanism are going to be our way out of this happenstance not well thought out, evolved biological situation that we are in to a more perfectly rational state, which obviously that's utopian and capitalism will mess it up like it always does. And class factors will play a role. And mm. we don't want only the rich being transhuman and stratospheres. And science fiction does a really good of exploring all the ways it could be messed yeah. up in horrible ways. Yeah. But, but there still is a slim path, I think, through all of that to a kind of transhuman post-human states where we are more deeply compassionate, where the suffering of strangers matters as much as the suffering of our loved ones and family, the suffering of animals matters as much as those people as, as well. And I, I think that's a better world, which is within our grasp. And the kind of idealistic utopians pictured like as heaven by the religions, escaping death, ending suffering, those things are the goals of transhumanism. And they're our ultimate expression of this idea that we're the ones we've been waiting for. We're not going to wait for salvation or redemption. We're going to try to do it ourselves. And maybe that's the ultimate hubris, like I said, and maybe we'll fall on our face and God will come down and say, see, I told you, and we'll go, ah, oh, damn it. Maybe we'll succeed or something else will happen, maybe. But anyway, so I think that's, when I think about transhumanism, I think of it as the ultimate us humans saying, look, we're sick of waiting. We're going yeah. to, we see a path. We're going to do it and we're going to take our shot. And that's where we're at now. Yeah. That's an inspiring message to wrap up on. And I love the way you framed that because in a way, when the best version of transhumanism tries to pull both of those levers, right? It's unashamedly looking at technological development and innovation and ideas and new ways of solving problems. And often in these conversations, people recognize that actually that's probably a stronger path to a more compassionate future than just moral argument because right. just the way we are, you've got to make it cheap, fast, easy, quick. So it makes it easier for us to improve our morals. But at the same time, transhumanism has to have that moral development and that drive at its heart. And sometimes it isn't right. Some flavors of transhumanism sometimes feel like a sort of elitist libertarian techno fantasy that leaves you know lots of other people behind. Right? A right. positive vision of transhumanism absolutely has to have that moral development as well as the technical development. And I think you, you, that moral de development, I think there's a couple of ways, tests you can always ask about people's ethics when it comes to non-humans. One is, does that way of thinking work for human animals as well? I'm not saying they're equal, but if your ethic about non-humans doesn't work for humans, maybe there's a sign there's something wrong there. And the more fundamental right. one, which you talked about is, as in human ethics, just take the perspective of the other. You can't do that perfectly, but just imagine yourself in their shoes, think about their family, think about their experience, think about their life, and is what you're suggesting you're doing now justifiable or not? Exactly. So we'll see. Maybe there is some sort of utopian future where we develop technically and technologically, but we also develop morally and ethically too. And we'll get exactly. Well, that's why it'd be nice if the Kantian idea about rationality were true, as opposed to the Humean one, because if Humes then you can decouple rationality from any goal and any goal can be rationally pursued. Whereas if Kant is not every goal can be rationally pursued. And so a super intelligence can't rationally pursue genocide and so forth and so yeah. on. And Although there's interesting questions here because anyway, yeah, there's a lot of, there's always interesting questions, but one of them <laughs> is like about the sort of 
Isaac Asimov question about what's the best way to save humans? If, if you build the super intelligence and its job is to save or to shepherd humans and safeguard them, what's the best way to do that? And iRobot, the story at least, its idea is corral all humans, deprive them of their autonomy. And humans get all pissed off and say, no, we would rather have autonomy and, and make these mistakes. And so you get this kind of holy biblical thing again about the fall and all that stuff. It's like a perfectly safe place where you're yeah. taken care of, or you're going to be free and, and everything goes bad. And so that's a kind of, I, I, again, science fiction is great for, for exploring these ideas. And one of the other things that you just mentioned, actually, is that you can see in science fiction is this kind of incredible guilt complex that we have as a species. Because every time we think about alien species, what do we think about? Oh, bigger predators than us. Yeah. What if they treat us like animals? To me, the theme of every like sci-fi horror alien movie is basically the question, what if there's a species that treats us the way we treat non-human animals? Yeah. Wouldn't that suck for us? <laughs> and But they never get the message. Oh, gee, should we apply that to the way we treat maybe, the... <laughs> yeah, maybe we should set a better example. I joked recently that, you know, if we are going to be overseen by artificially intelligent overlords, maybe we should set a better example now about how to treat less powerful sentient beings. We better hope... Well, there's our... real life examples of that because a lot of these AI algorithms are like learning how to be racially biased and insensitive yeah. from studying our behavior. Like you probably saw that Twitter bot thing that yeah. got a lot of popular. Yeah. And I think I think this would be a whole other conversation I, and I should let you go eventually because I'll really run over. But in a sense, the challenge of AI alignment and AI safety and ethics, we like to think it's because we're worried the AI will have worse ethics than us. But I think yeah. it's also because we're worried the AI will have better ethics than us because this genuinely super intelligent AI would probably constrain humans and would force us to shut down animal farming. And so maybe there's a, there's a second hidden agenda in AI alignment. Of- That's an interesting <laughs> point, actually. Yeah, you're right. We don't want the AI to have better ethics than we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't want the AI to have better ethics than we do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But so just, I like this idea of, <clears throat> so there's this critique of the kind of ideas that I'm talking about transhumanism generally, which is that there's this idea of the individual autonomous chooser person mm. that person doesn't exist the enlightenment ideas never existed there doesn't exist any such creature so the whole ideas of transhumanism are misguided or, you know those creatures doesn't exist and we're modeling ourselves on this kind of picture which is outdated and science tells us blah 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 so i actually think that's one of the nice things about transhumanism is that we can agree with that and in fact i explicitly say yeah probably that kind of thing that we're talking about doesn't exist but the whole point of transhumanism is that kind of thing serves as an ideal towards which we want to work and transhumanism provides us a path from here to there. And so the idea is not to make us more perfect versions of what we already are, because we aren't that, but rather the idea is to bring into existence the kind of thing which we are talking about, which is a rational, empathetic creature that chooses in these, and like all the enlightenment ideals uh, actually embodied in a certain way. And so I think we could admit that thing hasn't existed, that humans aren't that kind of creature, but that it still would be nice if there were such that, a kind of thing. And that actually, rather than embodying that ideal as a transhuman God or a transcendental being, rather the idea is, no, let's us be that thing. Let's yeah. make ourselves into that kind of thing. And so there's all sorts of ways it could go wrong, but I think that's the best bet. I don't want to, I don't want to move on top of a mountain and pray that things work out. I wanna make things better here while we're here for us while we're here. And that I think is what transhumanism tries to do. And that's what I think the religious approach. Now, don't get me wrong, there's charities and all that stuff. Yeah, I get it. So religion does some good. I think overall it's outweighed by the harm it, it does. So I guess I would defend the idea that religion is overall bad morally, not that every religious person is bad morally, yeah. but that overall its influence is bad. But nonetheless, okay, yes. 
<laughs> well, I have I a tendency to go on and on. I'm sorry about that. No, I love it. I love that. I love that hopeful vision. I could talk to you for another six hours, but I, I should let you go. And I'd love to yeah. have another conversation. But it's an inspiring vision. Yeah, we can genuinely make things better and it better be down to us because nobody else is going to step forward. And if we exactly. can, in the short term, persuade more of the transhumanist movement and more, frankly, philosophers and public intellectuals to recognize it's not just about humans, right? It's all about, it's about non-human sentience as well. And that would also be an encouraging step to take. Yeah. So let's see, let's see. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much, Richard. What's Thanks, the best- I enjoyed it. I appreciate the invitation and the work you're doing is great. So I keep it up. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And what's the best way people following you, uh, subscribing to Consciousness Live? Uh, oh, I can include uh, yeah. the links in the show notes. So don't worry too much, but I'll, I'll put your website and everything in the, in the show notes. My name is Richard Brown. And there's a lot of those. So I am One More Brown. And you can find me at onemorebrown.com, O-N-E-M-O-R-E-B-R-O-W-N. So I have all my stuff there, basically. But our Richard Brown philosophy on YouTube and at One More Brown on Twitter. Yeah, that's where you can find that stuff. And then iTunes and all that stuff is where Consciousness Live is. Which, by the way, for those who don't know, it's just like informal conversations, much like this, but more focused on consciousness. And all of that came up here, obviously, as well. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And hopefully our conversation today will nudge a couple more people towards a rational, compassionate Cool. Yeah. If you have questions or comments, send them my way. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. So I appreciate it and happy to come back. And uh, like I said, keep up the good work. I I enjoy your conversations and I I hope more people just not to keep going on and on. It's nice that there are, that is more accepted and that there are more, I don't want to be insensitive, but more male people paying attention to this issue, which culturally I think is something that maybe that's a whole nother conversation, but certainly my mom said that when she was young, there were no male vegetarians. It was very hard to find. So it's, I think that's something that's changing that ideas about masculinity and whether it's, you can be masculine or healthy or male or math, if those matter to you, uh, which some people they do, that uh, that stereotype is being broken. And so I think that's, that's nice that there's these kinds of conversations and it's not just perceived as not, there's anything wrong being feminine, obviously, but uh, Yeah, I think given the weirdness of human (laughs) psychology, normalization is an important lever to pull. So yeah, Yeah. this is a tiny contribution to... Exactly. As long as people think we're normal, but maybe, you know, I'll leave that to them. <laughs> yeah, no, we, ru- we ruined that already. <laughs> we might've sure. failed. We might've failed there. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. Thank All you right. so much. And apologize to your students for cutting. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more. And you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?